0: All right. Hey guys and welcome to the Business as Usual podcast episode 60. I'm here this week with Brandon from Aussie Wealth Creation. Hey, hey. Um, I w- wanted to ask you something just straight off the bat here. Yeah. Have you noticed how big Warren Buffett's ears
1: are? How big his ears are? <laughs> yeah. Oh actually I did kind of <laughs> notice that. I, cause they like his earlobes kind of hang a little bit, and yeah, they're like kind
0: three of, quarters the size of his head.
1: Yeah, when you lean forward, and I think that in the in the annual meeting, your attention was drawn to them more by the fact that his hair's so much longer, cause he he says in the in the meeting he hasn't been able to get a haircut for like seven weeks or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's it's pretty funny though. <laughs> yeah,
0: that massive. But yeah, he was like he was sitting. There, I was just like I was just looking at his ears the whole time. They're huge.
1: <laughs> oh gosh, that's <laughs> hilarious! I'm gonna look it up real quick and have a look. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, how have you been anyway?
0: Ah, uh, not too bad. How's lockdown been going for you?
1: It's uh, it's not too bad. Like, I'm I'm lucky in a sense that my life isn't very affected because all the work that I do is for myself anyway. So I just work from home. Um, yeah. So I'm kind of lucky in, in that respect. Um, but uh, yeah, what about you? You're you're still going to work or working from home or
0: Working from home
1: for now. Um, right. Hopefully we'll we'll see an end to that relatively soon. Yeah. They had the um, plan put in place yesterday. Three step yeah. plan to ease restrictions. Yeah. I can't quite remember what was in each each phase, but is the first phase effective immediately? I would imagine. Um, it's based on the
0: states, so. Oh okay. The, the plan is a framework set up at the national level. Yeah. I think what what they want to do is set up the framework that's going to be standard across the country and then because there's a clear step one two and three the only information you need to know based on your state is which step are we on Mm. and then you can find the relevant documents Like, that three-step plan, you can find that anywhere. You don't have Mm. to make sure you've got the right one for your state. Because I think that was one of the issues coming into it because it hit so quickly. The states are moving at a different speed than the federal government. Right. Which which makes sense because each state is going to be affected differently. Different, yeah. Like, the Northern Territories had barely any cases. So, Mm. there's no reason for them to be on the same... Level of lockdown as New South Wales.
1: Yeah, same as the ACT. There's actually no where I live here in in Canberra. There's currently no known active cases of the virus in in, in Canberra. So yeah, it it wouldn't make sense to enforce an, an enormous lockdown on a place where you don't know of any active cases. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm.
0: Um, but I think then the issue was that there was there were some people who listened to. The what was coming out of the federal government. Mm. And that was out of step with what was in place in their state. Yeah. And so, on the way out, they needed to have some sort of a uniform plan that then can be applied at different rates,
1: which is effectively what we've got here. I'm kind of interested by this easing of restrictions. I wonder... Because obviously, if you ease the restrictions and and let people interact more, you would expect the number of cases to rise, Yeah, like at at least some extent. I wonder how many more cases of the virus they would have to see before they went, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh, nope, sorry, scrap that, everything, shut it back down.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with the infrastructure in place to right. control and track and that's a good point like contain the virus yeah so coming in we didn't have enough tests we didn't have like people weren't on the lookout for symptoms um people weren't educated about mm. the virus and so it's a lot more difficult to contain it on the way up than on the way down
1: yeah so, that's a good point
0: like with the flu we can we can contain the flu there's As we were hearing in the early stages of the virus, there's thousands of flu cases every year, but Mm. there's sort of well-established protocols in identifying people with the flu, testing them, keeping them away from other people and whatnot. When a case is identified, track it, like track all those persons' contacts, Mm. like get in contact with them, tell them to be on the lookout. I think... We'll have probably around the level of cases we've got now for probably at least a year. So, like, we've got about 800 cases in Australia now. And so that's probably fairly manageable because a lot of those cases are going to be pretty mild. And then if those people are staying away from other people, then it's just a controlled spread through the community. And that's you're never going to stop it entirely and the virus itself.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. You do definitely do have to weigh that up because in one way by locking locking everything down you might be stopping suffering through the virus itself and then by opening it back up you're stopping the suffering through financial loss and financial hardship yeah
0: <laughs> yeah
1: it's and a bit of a balancing that's, act
0: that's i think one of the the things that i was disagreeing with a lot of people about on the way in was mm. people were expressing it as a two-sided crisis where We have to weigh up either saving the economy or suppressing the virus. But I think that if you look at it through the eyes of and so it's really the same goal to save the economy and to suppress the virus is the same thing. Mm. Um, it just affects people in different ways and yeah i think there was the the line in the big short where i think they were in vegas and like the two younger guys and brad pitt's character yeah i remember that scene yeah where like like the two younger guys were celebrating that they'd made this big bet and it was all gonna fall over and he sort of tells them to take a step back you realize yeah. he gave some statistic of every percentage unemployment goes up so many people die
1: yeah It's like, Uh, think about the bigger picture. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And I think that's what we've got here is that there are deaths attributable to, you can't sort of measure them directly, but they are there. They do exist.
1: And even if it's not death, there's certainly, you know, real financial hardship and loss of quality of life and that sort of stuff, which is.
0: Well, that's the measure that people or the economists use is um, quality adjusted life years or QALYs. Yeah. Um, and effectively, it's a, it's a way that they can quantify the real human effects of yeah. economic changes. Um, mm. And I think there's a certain number of quality adjusted life years, which is like there, there's a certain number of them that's equivalent to a human life. And yeah. so at some point, you cause more damage through the economy than through suppressing the virus. mm Although I think that the other factor there is you can open everything up, but if the virus is running rampant, nobody's going to go out anyway, and nobody's going to go to the shops or go to movie theaters, and the economy is going to be screwed anyway. So to say that the lockdown was too much, I think, is premature.
1: Yeah. I'm looking up quality-adjusted life years. The amount of time an individual spends in a given health state is then multiplied by the health state preference value to calculate the quality-adjusted life years gained or lost. I suppose. So it's kind of this interesting, taking into account how long you're suffering from a particular thing, base, and also the severity of the thing. <laughs> yeah. Or or something like that.
0: So I think like the 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 way I've heard it. Described before is if someone dies and they are you lose less quality adjusted life years than if you have a perfectly healthy nine year old die,
1: right? All right, that makes sense, yeah. So it puts things in perspective a little bit, it considers those sort of factors.
0: You can see that you can have a a range of policy applications for that. Where say you've got the government sitting down making their budget and they can they've got a hundred million dollars left, do they put that into? Aged care, or do they put that into some sort of school health projects or vaccinations or something like that? Then you can fall back on like a quantitative measure, Mm. where you might have more bang for the buck in terms of the number of people you help in aged care, but that then can be outweighed by the fact that you'll be saving more quality adjusted life years per person.
1: That's that's makes sense. Yeah.
0: That's I mean. I don't envy the the people's job who are working in government right now. Mm, That's, yeah. it's, not, uh, it's not a light workload.
1: True, they, they would be working overtime plus.
0: Oh, uh, yeah. So we've got two main topics that we're going to talk about here. I think we'll start with Buffett and the Berkshire annual Annual Meeting. First thing I want to talk about, I know we spoke about it through Messenger a few weeks ago, was the airline issue, that Buffett seems to have basically just made a big blunder. Uh, What are your thoughts on on his uh, airline purchase and then he's sold them all off now?
1: Yeah, that's that's going back probably like a month ago now. We were having a chat about that because a bit of context, Buffett uh, had owned more than 10% in Southwest and in Delta. I believe. And then he sold and owning more than 10% in those companies means that if you buy or sell, you have to report what you're doing within two business days to the SEC. So he sold to get under the 10% and, and, and that's when we were kind of discussing whether or not he was just selling to, to now get under 10%. So he didn't have to report or whether this was the start of him, you know, getting out or whether he was positioning himself to like buy one of the airlines outright or something crazy like that. Yeah. Um, but it turns out, as he was talking about in his shareholder meeting, that he just thought, you know, well, he, I don't think he made a mistake. Like he says that, oh, I made a bit of a mistake. But I mean, everything you just weigh up the probabilities, right? And he talks about this, like when he entered into his airline positions, you know, the the idea of a of a pandemic was, as he as he said, on the very much the lower side of probability. So he was still happy to make the investment. Uh, I mean, if, if you looked at every single risk factor of every single company and, you know, you just thought, oh, what if every single risk factor actually happened, then you probably never invest in any company ever. Like there's always yeah. some level of risk involved. Um, but obviously he looked at the idea of maybe a pandemic or something and thought that, that was very much on the lower side of probability. However, it happened and that's the problem with something like a pandemic is that you obviously can't see it coming and with something like this how transmissible the the uh, virus is is that in really even though it goes on for months and months in in the grand scheme of things that's very very fast yeah so all of these companies they didn't have the best balance sheets but you know they had balance sheets that were manageable. However, all of a sudden this massive risk factors now come to light and it's happened so quickly that it's not like the airlines could see this coming and start to make slow, but sure changes over the space of 12 months or a couple of years just to make sure that they'd get through it. All right. It's just like whatever condition your balance sheet is in right now, bang, cop it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And then, and now you have to make your decisions uh, and, and that's what's happened. And, and Buffett's reasoning of selling out is um, is essentially that he just thinks the, the world has changed for the airlines. I mean, obviously, they've been caught in a position where they are short of cash. So they have to do things like you know sell new stock or they have to take on these big loans. And of course, taking on big loans means that eventually you have to pay them back. So that takes out of, you know, future years earnings. And I think he just got to the he he, kind of came to a decision that when he looked at what the airlines were having to do and what position they weren't having to put themselves in just to get through it now, I just don't think he saw the uh, the benefit of it in the ultra long term. So he sold. And I mean, there's no doubt, like looking at the airlines, it it doesn't look pretty. And I think the CEO of Delta, was it Delta? I, I could be wrong on that. Anyway, came out and said in their... In their earnings release, he said, look, Delta is going to be a smaller airline for quite some time. That's unfortunately, I you know, I regret to bring you this news, but that's just the reality. Delta yep. is not going to be the big flourishing airline that it was last year for quite a while. <laughs> so I think Buffett just sees the long term picture and he tries to figure out how much he could potentially get out of the business over time. And I just think there's too many factors now that, that, that kind of kill his confidence, I suppose. What do you think? Didn't he make a purchase
0: in Delta fairly recently?
1: Yeah, that's that's the crazy thing and I was actually talking to Hamish um about this on the Young Investors podcast that we just did mm-hmm. is that exactly right. It was in March, end of February maybe, that he actually got interviewed Fe- end of February, yeah, or maybe mid-February. Yeah, he got interviewed by a guy from CNBC who asked him whether he'd be selling stock in the airlines, and he was like, <laughs> "No, I I won't be selling my airline stocks." <laughs> yeah,
0: but like he has he has purchased, I think, this year. Yes, definitely. Um, and I think we were. Yeah. I think we spoke about this. Before last time you were on the podcast, we were sheltered from the news of the virus here in Australia because we had those bushfires at the beginning of the year. But the virus was spreading in December. Uh, yeah. Like ne- late November, I think they're saying it It first broke out. So when we talk about Buffett buying airlines, I think you have to attribute some level of him making a mistake because the virus was known. Uh, yeah, yeah. And It to, wasn't known
1: for the whole time he was buying, but he, he was still buying some shares um, when he did know about it. Yeah. yeah,
0: so obviously he's been building up his position for several yeah. years, uh, but we were very quick to jump on the politicians and say, well, they should have known it was, it was uh, spreading through China in December and then we will not attribute that to other people. I mean, you, you've got to imagine Buffett's got amazing information from all over the world. You'd imagine so, yeah. Um, And so, I think, yeah, he he probably made a mistake there. And that uh, interview he did on CNBC didn't age very well.
1: No, it didn't. (laughs) Um, It's a bit of an awkward moment for Buffett when you watch it back. Yeah.
0: I do wonder, though, how much he is involved in the analysis of the businesses these days. You reckon?
1: I reckon he does most of it.
0: Well, I wonder how much he has a staff of people who are undertaking Mm, research and putting together reports or something for him and then getting in a room with him and laying out the information. Like, I don't know how much he's going on Google and typing in, (laughs) should I buy Tesla stock?
1: (laughs) Um, Can you imagine Warren Buffett doing that? (laughs) Imagine Warren Buffett watching some YouTube video about whether or not you should buy Tesla stock.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, like I imagine because he has so much firepower, mm. um, and he he needs to have a lot of information on hand all the time. So I'd imagine he must have a staff of of people who are able to research for him, um, yeah. and he can say to them, "Can you please get me?" this set of numbers or can you write me up a a summary of this company's business model yeah and then he can then read that Mm. and I'm sure on on his side he's always reading I mean that's the story about him right yeah he's always reading and taking in things and uh, and so he's finding things he's coming up with ideas and then a lot of that heavy lifting like the, the sort of detailed Pulling together of numbers and finding different sources and whatnot. I'm sure he's got a staff to do that. Yeah. And then so so bringing it back to the interview, I wonder if that was just at an awkward time when he still didn't quite realize how bad it was going to be. And so he gave this interview, him having a picture of the airline business as it was, and like he could very well have walked out of the interview And then gone into his office and being like, oh, no. Oh, wait, I take it back. (laughs) So then there was the the other interesting point that I was was seeing was him talking about how the Federal Reserve kind of took away a lot of opportunities for Berkshire. Yeah. And I think Greg Abel was was also talking on that point a little bit Mm. about how they were getting calls... About investing in yeah. in companies or, or at least extending loans to companies, which...
1: Yeah, companies needing capital, yeah.
0: I think historically how they've been structured for Buffett is in the form of some sort of preferred share. Yeah. And so he gets a a dividend payment, which is effectively an interest payment. Um, and then that often just converts into equity at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on the? Well, actually, let's we'll take a step back and say, what What are your thoughts on the the actions of of the Fed and of other central banks? I know it's been a hot topic on on YouTube recently.
1: Yeah, I, I don't pay much attention to it. To be perfectly honest, mm-hmm. um, you you would know. You you could run circles around me talking about central banks and <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. Um, but from from Buffett. From Buffett's perspective when he was talking in the in the um shareholder meeting he he definitely did say you know what you're just saying is that around you know that uh, mid march kind of um time they were starting to get you know some calls he was describing how you know money was becoming hard to get for a for a period of time, but he spent quite a while in in that meeting praising the fed for for acting so quickly and in such a big way yeah um which is interesting because obviously if they yeah kind of like if they if they don't act then that might even be better for berkshire because it means that they might get better opportunities but even despite that buffett still took the time to say you know the, the fed did a great job um in making sure that basically money was tightening up and then companies were trying to get their financing done and starting to struggle and then the Fed stepped in and, and all the companies were able to finance in as Buffett describes very big ways. And that's the reason why um like what you're saying, Buffett and Greg Abel, they weren't um they were getting calls, but then as soon as the Fed stepped in the calls stopped because there were just there was no one desperate enough for money that they couldn't get terms that were enticing enough for, for them to take to take action.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think the a way I like to think about what the Fed has done here, which unfortunately is not represented anywhere online, everyone seems to just be they kind of default to the idea of the Fed's printing money and so hyperinflation's happening next week mm. um, because that gets clicks, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, people do tend to, you know, talk very negatively about, you know, the central banks and that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, it doesn't matter what side of politics you're on. It's interesting that the central banks are generally just maybe not disliked, although there certainly are cases of people disliking. But distrusted. They seem a lot of people seem to think that the Fed has or central banks are very self interested and kind of don't know what they're doing. Uh, yeah, I I
1: get that vibe.
0: Yeah, which is just wrong. It's not true it's yeah, no. it's entirely incorrect. I mean, for example, our r b a Governor, uh Philip Lowe, has been working in central banking literally his entire career. He started working at the r b a in um in like the eighties, I want to say. he was still at university when he started working at the r b a and they mm. basically he, he it was like a kind of an apprenticeship sort of deal. So he he went to university while he was working there, like a very low level, obviously, Mm. Um, and then worked there for a while, then went over to MIT and did his PhD, and then came back, and he's just worked for the RBA literally since he was like 20 years old. So he knows what what he's doing.
1: Yeah, he's an experienced campaigner.
0: Yeah, Um, and I... Don't know the the credentials of uh, the Fed president.
1: Yeah, many of them. But
0: I know that the obviously there was Janet Yellen. She was like sort of very experienced in economic policy advice. She would worked in several administrations. I think uh, within like the president's economic advisory team. Before her, there was Ben Bernanke, who like was the Fed president during the the financial crisis. And he is also someone who's just been thinking about central banking and monetary policy his entire career. Mm. Um, He's a very, very well-respected academic. He's sort of one of the world's foremost experts on the Great Depression and how the Fed's actions during the Great Depression. Yeah. And then looking at Europe, you have currently Christine Lagarde, who... I don't think it's the CEO. But she was she was the head of yep. the IMF. Okay. Uh, previously to disappointment and so that these are very experienced people. Uh you're not people getting drags up the street to come and do this. Mm. Um and the way I would explain what the Fed's doing at this point is you've got these funding markets. So that that's how you have to think about the stock market and uh the bond market from the perspective yep. of a company uh like we obviously think about them as investment opportunities yeah for them it's a funding market
1: yeah how they get money yeah yeah
0: um and that funding can be for expansion um but there's also that funding can be for literal day-to-day operations um and they maintain there's a a part of finance called corporate finance uh, that's what
1: you're interested in right yes
0: yeah, it's, it's one, of, one of the areas that like I find quite interesting right um, and what it does is so valuing a company is corporate finance right um, so when you're doing a DCF that's corporate finance right? right. There's, there's a very specific part of that where you look at the capital structure of a business uh, so you're looking at their debt to equity ratio Mm -hmm. and there's a bunch of effects that come out of how much debt does a company have. And when you run the numbers based on things like the fact that interest is an expense, yes, and so you effectively build a tax shield with that interest, you take into account like that, you take into account several different factors, and you come out with the result that companies are actually better off having some debt, and for different companies, different levels of debt is more appropriate Um from a mathematical perspective.
1: Yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying, yeah.
0: And so what you have is you have the finance um of these businesses wanting to maintain a capital ratio or a debt to equity ratio mm. at a certain point because that's what they've determined is the most efficient capital structure for them to have but that can cause some problems because like there's different ways of going about it and one of the easier ways is to take on short-term debt and mm-hmm. then roll it over so you take on say a year's a, a year-long bond mm-hmm. and then instead of paying out the principal on that bond at the end of the year out of your cash You just issue another bond and use the proceeds from that bond to pay off the previous one. Oh,
1: I see. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So you always have a constant level of debt. It's not going down over time. But when you have those funding markets dry up when nobody wants to lend, you have a problem because you need to make that payment or you'll go bankrupt. Yeah. And that's effectively what happens here is you get a bunch of companies needing to roll over debt. And this happens, the reason it happens so quickly is because a lot of big companies have overnight funding in the debt markets or like weekly funding in the debt markets.
1: Oh, okay.
0: So, like you you often hear about the repo market. Yeah. That's overnight debt funding effectively. Right. Um, and so, big companies like GE, all the banks, they meet their liquidity needs, so like paying their suppliers, paying their employees, all of those sorts of things, they meet that through the funding market. Right. And you can imagine if the funding market dries up because there's some sort of a panic, Mm. those companies run into trouble very fast.
1: And they do that on a a very short-term basis. Yep. Right. And a reason for that... Yeah, I'm interested to hear the reason for it because I feel like that would add quite a bit of risk.
0: Oh, yeah. So the reason for that is effectively because having a bunch of cash sitting around doesn't earn you any money. Um, and so you can go out instead of holding a bunch of cash, you'll hold a bunch of, say, treasury bills, mm. which are perfectly safe. Yeah. Um, and it, it, when you look on a, a balance sheet, they're called cash and cash equivalents. Mm. So. Yeah. When you look at a balance sheet and you see a bunch of cash there, a lot of times it's not actually cash, it's, it's yeah, treasury yeah, bills, yeah, um, and what they do is say, you're g e and you need to pay ten million dollars for um, your suppliers, yeah, you just say you go to the funding market and sell ten million dollars of your treasury bills, and with the promise that you'll buy them back tomorrow. And then tomorrow there's something else. You sell some other treasury bills, buy those ones back.
1: Right. So it's very short term, just keeps going and going and going.
0: Yeah. You know. And what that does, it allows it allows GE to hold interest earning assets on their balance sheet instead of just cash.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it is smart in a way, but it's also risky if you have like what we just saw. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. So if you have those funding markets dry up, there's a problem. Yeah, then you have to
1: pay up with cash. Yeah.
0: Now, the companies doing this are very, very credit-worthy companies. Yeah. So, like, you're not going to find low-credit-worthy companies doing this to a large extent. Uh, They might do it every once in a while, but they're not going to have sort of standing facilities to do it. Um, When you have sort of a financial apocalypse, like we've just had, or like 2008 and those funding markets dry up then you suddenly see the whole financial system start to freeze and so in a lot of the literature on the 2008 crash they talk about it like a contagion like a virus spreading Mm. through the financial markets that these firms were unable to find funding because nobody knew who was credit worthy anymore and so What you find with the Fed coming back into the market now is when they say we're buying bonds, we're buying corporate bonds, we're putting money into the repo market, like all of these facilities, basically what they're saying is if you need money, we're there, we will step in and buy it. Like We'll Mm. we'll buy your bonds from you to keep you afloat. A a good way to visualize it is like a sink filling with water. Mm. Usually if you put the tap on, and the plug's not in the water just flows yep. into the sink and down down the the drain. no problem. but if you put the plug in, it'll start to fill up, um, and you can put the plug in like sort of so it's not completely tight, and yep. it restricts the flow. Yep. that's basically what happens here, yeah is that right. you've got this restricted flow of money through the the financial system, and the Fed's job is to come and pull the plug out. So they're, they're like a plumber.
1: <laughs> it's a good quote. <laughs> Jason Hughes 2020 the Fed is a plumber.
0: But yeah, so so they're like a plumber and they've they come and like clear the pipes, let yeah, the money flow. No, yeah, that makes flow. sense. And so they job when everyone's freaking out about them printing money, it's more about the promise to print money than them actually
1: doing it. Right. Everyone just wants to be reassured.
0: Yeah, so if they can open up the funding markets, suddenly what you're able to do is see who's paying back their their loans, mm. um, who is still creditworthy, who's not creditworthy anymore. So the firms mm. that are creditworthy can continue to access funding. Yeah. But if the market's totally frozen, you don't know who's creditworthy anymore. Mm. And so that causes a bit of an issue. Um, so yeah, that's that's what the Fed's doing basically, coming out here. And they did it much quicker this time because last time in 2008, they weren't fast enough, basically. And mm. that and so everything froze up to a point that for several months, those markets were effectively closed down. And that's why it was so bad.
1: Right, there you go. Uh,
0: and I think like, a good measure of that, you can get it from the St. Louis Fed. Mm. Um, it's called the TED spread. Uh, I generally if you google it it'll be yeah, like it. one of the first things that comes up uh, the TED spread is the the spread between the um, three month LIBOR rate and a three month treasury bill so right. a corporate, corporate rate versus risk free rate on three months right Um, and what you'll see if you bring up the chart
1: yeah I've got it Look at that that spike.
0: after about late February, it spikes up to very, very high. Uh, And then um, around the sort of end of March, I think around the 24th of March, when the Fed said they were stepping in, I think that was when they said they'd step in with unlimited
1: money. (laughs) Unlimited money. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then you see that come crashing down again. Starts falling at about March, what, 27th. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. And then back down she comes.
0: Yeah, I and mean, if you go back to 2008...
1: Oh, that's nasty.
0: You'll see, like you sort of oh. had, like around August, you had that happen. I think that was yep Bear Stearns. Um, then you have you have another peak around December two thousand seven. Yep. Um, and then it goes up around and then the March, big and then right around September when, yep. Freddie when Fanny and Freddie. When it's a conservatorship, you have a a spike and then you have another spike when Lehman, uh, w- when Lehman went bankrupt. Wow. There you go. So, yeah, that's uh, the, like, sort of an easy way of understanding what they're doing. So did you have any other interesting points from the annual meeting?
1: Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I was a little bit interested in the fact that Despite markets going down by you know thirty five percent, Buffett still only in the first quarter he bought like was it four billion dollars worth of stock? Like just really didn't funnel any money in into the market whatsoever. But I mean, he kind of explained that when he was saying that he didn't really get any opportunities that he was interested in.
0: Yeah. Um, Do you think that to a point Buffett's becoming too old for the current market?
1: I was thinking that the other day. I don't. I don't know. I mean, he's certainly in terms of, you know, looking at businesses. Like he knows what he's doing, and you know, the 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 way that he looks at businesses is still a great way of looking at, it. and it's 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 going to last the test of time. I just I think that particularly technology is is moving way past him now. Yeah and probably a, a direct contrast to s- listening to someone like Warren Buffett is what we'll talk about with the Elon Musk interview where he's talking to Joe Rogan about how you know in 5 to 10 years neuralink could be at a point where we don't even have to talk to each other anymore because we're just zapping over <laughs> yeah. our our little implants in our brains zapping packets of information to explain you know cons- uh, complex concepts and blah 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 but um i th- i think you see that with a lot of Elderly people is that they they didn't keep up hard enough with technology, particularly over the last say twenty years, yeah. um, where technology's oh. really gone crazy. Yeah, um, like I, I see that in my grandparents as well, and um, yeah, and, and I, I think that that's I think the, bringing the longer- back to Buffett, like yeah.
0: I think obviously his way of looking at the business. Understanding how a business runs, reading their reports. Yeah. That's still relevant.
1: That's always going to be relevant. But
0: the other side of his, or a main feature of his investing is trying to forecast what the business can make in the future. Yeah. Like understanding the business. Yeah, exactly. And I, understand I, the business, I wonder yeah. if he's got that capacity.
1: Mm. But then again, I mean, he, his big topic is circle of competence and he always talks about how it doesn't matter how big your circle of competence is, it's just whether you stick in it or not. So, yeah.
0: Although I think yeah. that like my main sort of criticism of that idea is that, well, what if your circle of competence is airlines,
1: right? Yeah, true. Yeah. Like you're not going to make or any money. Yeah. Or something that is, is going to die, a, a, an industry that's just going to become irrelevant or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so. No, I, I agree. No, I, th- I think like you definitely need to expand your circle of competence over time. I think if you're not expanding it, it's like, well, what are you doing? Like you are going to be outdated if you don't expand your circle of competence. Yeah. <laughs> Unless your circle of competence is bleeding edge technology. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, I think that with Buffett, you've got him he's adhering to his, his principles. He's not looking outside of his circle of competence and trying to play outside of his circle of competence. But I think that's making him
1: somewhat irrelevant. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. they I mean he'll he'll always be really good at looking at insurance companies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And insurance companies will probably exist well, well, well into the future. Yeah. Um, you you just yeah, gotta exactly. wonder
0: like how how much opportunity is there in insurance companies now
1: yeah and even within the idea of insurance companies for for instance if we look at again going back to elon musk if you look at the tesla and how he's talking about how you know tesla are creating their own insurance product because they have the the car that drives itself that has the cameras they can monitor with their data how you know how erratically or how safe a, a person is driving so they can adjust their insurance policy based on the data that they get out of their self-driving vehicles and blah 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 like all of that stuff to Buffett would just be like whoa yeah. <laughs> yeah um but if you just look at a traditional insurance company then buffer's like oh bread and butter here we go <laughs> yeah
0: yeah like that that's where he is obviously how much of Berkshire do you know is how much is insurance companies
1: I don't know. It's definitely the the heart of their business, but I don't know the the numbers.
0: That was what I sort of took out of the fact that he hasn't bought during the downturn, Mm. is that it's hard to imagine that there were no opportunities. Yeah. Like, there were no opportunities opportunities that he found.
1: Yeah. Um, And... That's... It's also worth remembering that for Buffett, an opportunity has to be in like the billions or tens of billions of dollars. That's true, k- kind of thing. Yeah. So we we might be looking at you know whatever a, a company with a market cap of say two or three or five billion dollars, and and we might be like, oh, great opportunity here uh, on I, I don't know what. But for Buffett, looking at that, he'd just be like, "Ah, screw that! I don't want to look at that. Yeah, (laughs) it's not going to have an impact to to Berkshire Hathaway. (laughs) Yeah, if I bought a ten percent stake in a a three billion dollar market cap company,
0: (laughs) what? Like, it just seems so constraining on them. It's it's yeah, it's got to be. I wonder if there's a way that they could they could fix that problem. You know?
1: Yeah, I don't know. Right. Like, I mean, it was like a crazy idea. You could divide up how your cash on hand into like kinda of like what they've done, how they've got Ted and Todd and they have ten billion dollars each or something and then yeah. just leave it to individual like individuals handle a, a certain portion of that money. Yeah. So they kind of like diversified uh uh diversified investors within <laughs> Berkshire Hathaway or something. I don't know. It's probably yeah. a bit of a crazy idea.
0: I wonder if you'll see something like that start to happen once Buffett and Munger. Like, move out of the business.
1: Potentially, yeah. I don't know. But they seem to have a lot of faith in, in Ted and Todd. But
0: Yeah. I wonder, obviously, we all see Buffett as the investing guy. But, like, I wonder how much of Berkshire, like, how how often do they sit there and talk about investing at Berkshire these days? Yeah, I don't know. How much are they talking about
1: their insurance businesses and yeah, making money off of that? Because I tend to think Warren Buffett talks more about the investing side of things, and I feel like that's why he brought in Ajit to run... Um, what was it? Uh, is, does Ajit run the insurance side, and then Greg runs everything that's not insurance, or is it the other way around? I can't remember. But I don't know. I feel like Buffett probably want wanted to be more the person the the analytical person looking into annual reports and looking at the next opportunity, and he wanted to kind of palm off the operational side of the their wholly owned business to other people. Yep, uh, that's my that's my take on it. That's why I guess he brought Ajit and Greg on board.
0: Yep, um, yeah, it's it's definitely an interesting uh, company, and it, it, yeah, it it's sure. he's he's got a lot of of knowledge. Uh, I. I think that the, there may be some, like, my my investing sort of, like, I, get, I don't really invest the way Buffett does. Right. Um, like, I, I've got, s- like, 60% of my portfolio in index funds. So, okay, I guess in yeah. that way, you can say I do. Yeah. The, the other 40% of my portfolio is in, effectively, tech stocks. Okay, yeah. Um and that is sort of based on like my circle of competence
1: is tech. Yeah, it's a driver, yeah.
0: Um and so that's why it's focused in tech, but obviously a lot of tech stocks aren't these companies with 10 years of financial data. That's true. Um and so the way I'm evaluating those companies is on kind of a principle that I I found expressed in a few places that you have some companies that if an industry is built around that company and around what that company does Mm. uh, and that industry becomes big, they tend to hold on to the biggest market share of that industry. Yeah, right. And so they'll often grow at just under... Like a one-to-one ratio with the whole market share.
1: Yeah, they kind of get dragged up. It's like the market itself getting bigger also drags them up with it. Yeah, yeah. that's
0: exactly it. Yeah. Um, and so my thesis on something like Afterpay yeah. is that they are the first mover, or they're not the first mover, but they're the, fir- they're the company that made the industry known.
1: Okay. And... Is 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 Afterpay just in Australia? No, no, no. It's it's so they're the world. in the okay. US and in the UK. Yeah, right. Uh, so that you're saying there may be competitors come in and you know and and challenges to market share, but as the as as um, you know, what do you even call it? Um, pay, payments. Deferred like deferred payments is that what you would yeah, call so it? the um,
0: so the industry
1: is sort of known as buy now pay later buy buy now pay later that's there they're the words I'm looking for. so so you're saying even though they might have more competitors and more options eventually because they're kind of a or a first mover they as the industry itself buy now pay later gets bigger and more people do it they'll kind of just go along with that ride yeah 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 well that makes
0: sense and a lot of that is going to be based on the fact that they're going to have to continue to innovate. To keep, yeah. to keep pace. Um, yeah. and so it's very much a, a matter of looking at who have they got on board? Who are they, where, where are they moving? How are they pushing the industry forward? Yeah. Um, and say I'll just use Afterpay as an example. Mm. They've got, so they're expanding globally very quickly, which few other companies are. Yep. Yeah. Um, so we've got like ZipPay is one of the companies, um, Flexi Group. In here in Australia, they do a lot of different things, but they've now launched a buy now pay later, uh, competitor. Right, and there's one called Wiser, which I forget who owns Wiser, Um, but Hmm. it's sort of a new one that's kind of taking a new model on it. Um, Okay, that like they're sort of doing a similar thing. There's there's a couple of different of the these companies, but if you look at afterpay they are what they're expanding globally very very fast they are setting up partnerships with big companies right. so like they've got a partnership with eBay now so wow. they become the buy now pay later for eBay
1: wow that's a big deal
0: yeah uh, <clears throat> and so they they're pushing that that market further like so it starts off as things in store and then they expand it to online. Now they're expanding to exclusively online businesses. Right. Um and I don't know if you saw the news recently that Tencent has taken a stake.
1: Oh no, I didn't see that. Wow, that's a that's a big deal. <laughs>
0: They've taken a ten ten percent stake in Afterpay. Right. Um and so that was taken as a massive vote of confidence by Yeah. Uh, investors, and I think it was earlier this week that they announced it, and Afterpay had a 30% day.
1: Mm, um, wow. I'm going to have to look back over this, because I, I remember looking at it briefly, but I looked at it maybe two years ago, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and at that time, following my kind of strategy, I, I think my conclusion was I didn't see a competitive advantage in them. That's
0: the, um, That's the thing about sort of the way I approach investing is so that there isn't a competitive yeah. advantage in any of these companies. And so yeah. that's like a risk that I take.
1: Okay. But it's also you kind of view it as um as the market leader or the first mover kind of is its competitive advantage. Or it 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 holds it holds the best competitive position.
0: Yeah. So it's not yeah. a competitive advantage in the sense of like having a
1: Like a network effect or a switching mode or something. Yeah, something like that. Yeah.
0: It's a competitive advantage in the sense that, historically speaking, you have companies like Netflix, for example, that were the innovators in their industry. They weren't the first people to do streaming video, but they were the innovators. And so their market share is going to be pretty much the highest forever. Yeah. It'll take a big change for them not to be the biggest player yeah Um, and you you see that coming so afterpay is one of those those things you can do now right Mm. like if you want to buy something you don't have the money for it we'll just afterpay it yeah Um, and so it's it's just one of those things Um, and it's a risk for sure Uh, you could have like the biggest risk that i see for afterpay is a company like Mastercard or Visa coming to the table with a similar product, yeah. and that would be kind of an end game for Afterpay. They'd have to fight very hard to get through that. Um, but at this point, n- you're not
1: seeing any sort of movement from those companies, and so
0: yeah.
1: Um, so th- I mean, that's what like investing. That's what investing is all about. I mean, you're taking calculated risks. So you yeah. do that every time you make an investment. So. Yeah. I mean, you just weigh up the the risk reward. You weigh up the potential of what could happen and the risk of what might not happen, and and then you make a decision. Yeah. And that's kind of like what I what I like about Warren Buffett when he says, "Yeah, like I've got my strategy, but uh, and it's called value investing." But I actually think that every investor out there is a value investor. I mean, we're all trying to do the same thing, right? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> like
0: they they talk about it in trading a lot, um, where you've got to build your edge you've got right. to find the thing that makes you profitable you've got to find the thing that you can do better than anybody else right yeah I see and in trading that sort of building a system building like where are you finding a little inefficiency in the market that you're able to take advantage mm. of whereas yeah. if you're talking about investing it's it, it, it gets distilled down into Warren Buffett's principles that mm. you're finding your circle of competence, what do you know the most about? And then his system is finding companies that have a competitive advantage. Yeah. And that then are under underpriced. So he's finding a market inefficiency. It's the same thing that a trader does.
1: Mm, just in a different way.
0: Yeah. Do you want to move on to to the the Elon Musk podcast?
1: Yeah. Holy moly, what a podcast. <laughs> so, I think I sent that to you when I yeah. saw
0: Joe Rogan tweeted that it was coming out.
1: Yeah, you were the one that alerted <laughs> me to that. I had no idea.
0: Yeah, I just saw it on, on Twitter and like I, I just took a photo and I was like, get ready. <laughs>
1: yeah. I was yeah, just yeah, it's like Brandon needs to know about this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, nah, it was a interesting podcast. To be honest, I was I was uh Obviously, I enjoyed it. It's always good. There's just a way Joe Rogan, he's just got a way of talking to people that's very engaging. Yeah, Um,
0: I think the thing that makes him so good is he doesn't come to the conversation with an agenda. And so he's got two things. He doesn't come to the conversation with an agenda. And the other thing is he knows how to gauge the other person and how much they're going to talk.
1: Yeah, that's that's true.
0: And with Musk, he takes these long pauses and other interviewers would jump in there and ask him a question.
1: Yeah. It kind of in a way makes Elon elaborate a little bit more, which I think is good.
0: Yeah, but he knows when to cut Elon off and when to
1: Yeah, yeah. No, nah, he he yeah, he he's very good at what he does. Yeah.
0: yeah. Uh I, I I compare that to for example, Lex Friedman. Yeah. He has a podcast, which I can find frustrating to listen to at times, because he comes to the podcast with an agenda. I think it's the best way to put it. He comes to the podcast with uh, like some sort of really out there mental framework that he wants to build with the person, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I, have you ever listened to his?
1: I've only listened to... like I think the only one I've listened to is the one with Elon Musk.
0: That, that's surprisingly one of the ones i haven't listened to oh, all right there you go <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah he come he comes to the, the table and he wants to build some big mental framework because he's he's one of these guys who is on a different planet to all of us <laughs> yeah. like just the work that he does and the way he thinks he's on a he's on a different planet mm. and that's what he he thrives on but it can make it difficult to listen to an interview because it's more about him than it is about the guest.
1: Right, okay. Yeah, that's not what you want. Well, I mean, maybe it is what you want if you're a super genius and, and people tune in for you. Uh, yeah, yeah. But generally speaking, I like to listen to podcasts where it's exploring what the guest is <laughs> up to. Yeah.
0: I mean, it, it's if you want to see, like, for example, Lex Friedman and Elon Musk would be a very interesting conversation. Um mm. But then some other, some other podcasts, um, like he did one with the, I think the head of YouTube algorithms, like the guy who, oh, okay. who heads that up. Yeah. And you can tell Lex has obviously, he's worked on algorithms, he's worked on AI, that's what he does, but in a very similar way to what this guy does. And so they were on the same wavelength and you felt like you were on the outside.
1: Right, um, right. The audience can't quite keep up or something. Yeah,
0: like it, it was just a like, little bit, you're like, what? what's the value in this conversation to me? Yeah. Uh, whereas, for example, he had a conversation with Paul Krugman, the economist, and Lex is fluent in economics, but he's not on the level of Paul Krugman. Yeah. And so that was an interesting conversation because you have lex coming to it from this crazy ai perspective yeah and you get an interesting interplay of the ideas Mm. and that's kind of what you get out of joe rogan as well
1: yeah well i like joe rogan because he always i think he's got that humility he goes into those podcasts not not afraid to to ask about things that he doesn't know yeah like if, if he hears something that he doesn't know he won't he, he kind of acts as, as the audience's buddy. <laughs> like, yeah. you ask the question, you ask the question. Like, Elon might say something out there, and Joe gonna be like, oh, w- what's that? <laughs> yeah,
0: well, there was the one point in the podcast this week where Elon made a comment about mental viruses, and yes. Joe didn't quite get what he was talking about and i didn't get what he was talking about at first either. yeah i didn't get that either and but he, he kept sort of pushing him and pushing him like like hang on just explain this to me what do you mean by yeah yeah mental? do you mean the the Neuralink chip gets a virus do you mean yeah like, uh but what he actually meant was conspiracy theories right yeah right um and yeah that that was showing where where he's good at doing what he does he wasn't afraid to seem dumb and hang on i didn't get what you just said can you please slow down
1: yeah (laughs) yeah no i get that so so what did you take out of the out of the um the podcast it it, we were talking before there's really only two things that they covered in depth and that was uh the Neuralink work and then elon's perspective on the coronavirus really
0: yeah well I think that that's the first time I've heard him speak really at length
1: about Neuralink. Yeah, that's. I agree. Yeah.
0: Um. Like not not in terms of learning what Neuralink's doing. I think a lot of that came out of that event they did last year. Yeah. But I found it interesting listening to his perspective on the idea of like h- human machine symbiosis.
1: Yeah. Um, and, that's that's in- incredibly interesting. <laughs> yeah,
0: and the way he was like, "Look, that's where we are right now." Yeah, uh, where you've got your phone, um, and like you think about it, it's not like he 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 put it in terms of like you go outside without your phone and you kind of have like missing limb syndrome. Yeah, or you you feel odd about that. Yeah, but I think that there's another. A way to look at it like if you want to know something if you're in an argument with someone and and like you look up a fact right like to, mm. to prove that you've won the argument in the past you'd have to use your brain to know that fact
1: yeah but exactly the right.
0: internet kind of becomes your brain
1: yeah definitely like if you get dropped out into society with no phone then you are a dum-dum <laughs> yeah versus everyone else yeah yeah like if you, yeah if you if you have an argument with anyone or if you want to you know uh access or if you want to research something like you you're at a massive disadvantage without a phone
0: yeah <laughs> um like you think about if you were dropped into an like an a foreign city
1: yeah like how the hell would you get around oh you'd you'd be done for if you didn't have a yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well at least i there are probably a lot of people that have those sort of skills where they can navigate and that sort of stuff but i i'd be done for i <laughs> feel like uh oh <laughs> well i think there's
0: like even a lot of people have those skills right they could they could navigate i, I guess you talk about reading a map or whatever like i think we can yeah. all we can all read a map yeah um but where do you buy a map yeah it's like where where are you going to buy a map of a city
1: yeah, you got to try and find maybe a news agency. If you're in a foreign language, like how do you know what's the news agency? You just got to start walking into shops and looking around. You can't communicate with it. Yes, yeah, uh, you're right. Yeah.
0: So that, so like the the instinct is all right. Well, I'm going to pull up Google Maps. I'm going to get my bearings. Yeah. Um, and like like everything, there's we we do everything with the aid of a computer. Definitely. Now the interesting thing with Neuralink was he was talking about it being more of a thera- therapeutic thing
1: to begin with yeah to definitely to begin with because otherwise like how are you going to make that leap uh for those that kind of don't have the the context about Neuralink Neuralink is essentially um a direct brain interface with um with it could be with with anything but in in the long term Elon is is thinking a direct brain interface with like a computer or the internet or um, a, an artificial intelligence system um, that you, you can kind of, that becomes part of you, that you can interact with. But, yeah, and initially to kind of progress to that level, um, I mean, you, you can't, I guess, I guess the best way to go about it is first make the system be able to do basic things. Yeah. <laughs> like I think that he was... um he was saying that one maybe this is an earlier earlier talk that he gave is that he first wants people to be able to control literally control a mobile phone that they have in front of them with their brain yeah uh and they would teach people you know they would teach people to interact with the the uh the implant that they have in their brain which would then connect to their phone they would teach them over time how to control their phone directly with their brain. Um, and then now he's kind of come back a, a step further. He's like, okay, well, if, if we're even going to try and get to that point, then let's do something simpler, which is already to, to an extent being done, is that let's help these neural implants control something like a just a singular muscle group yeah so whether it be like wrist flexes, so you can close your your wrist or finger flexes so you can c- close your palm for people that you know are quadriplegics or something, yeah if you can have you know these threads, these electrodes or threads or whatever they are in inside your brain interacting with your neurons, let's start basic and let's just maybe even just start with on off on off, yeah, and start because that that even just if you can just get someone to learn. How to control a neuralink, a a primitive neuralink system, which is as basic as on off, then for a lot of people, you can actually make a considerable improvement to their quality of life. Yeah. Um, for instance, that yeah, like quadriplegics just close open palm. (laughs) Think about uh, Stephen
0: Hawking. Yeah. Like his life was improved to a large extent from his the system they built for him definitely uh, yeah where he was able to communicate still mm. um, i think they they put like a little sensor on his glasses right um, and he was he had the ability to twitch his cheek okay. and so what he would do is it was very primitive uh, he'd have a screen in front of him and it would cycle between the letters of the alphabet and when yeah. it got to the letter that he wanted, he would twitch his cheek and they would add that letter. Uh, okay. And so he could construct words or sentences that way.
1: Mm, yep. Um,
0: and it's, I think it's a technique that they use basically for all patients who lose the ability to communicate via speech like that, mm, um, yeah. where a nurse will point to, like, if if someone's in distress, they can point to, like, are you hungry, are you... Yeah. Like whatever and they'll they'll signal that.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um uh, and so yeah, I and mean, that was a very primitive example, but you can see how much that improved his quality of life.
1: Hmm, definitely. Well there's no there's no doubt that it really only takes something very minor in a lot of these people's cases to improve their quality of life a lot just by how serious their condition is.
0: Yeah. Um and yeah, you you think about like if someone could think of a thought, think of a concept that obviously much further down the track. Mm. If you take the the example of Stephen Hawking, yeah, if he can think of his concept and it yeah. get translated into text straight away, yeah, that would be very useful.
1: Yeah, and and that's what Elon then takes over the conversation with Joe Rogan and says eventually you know, we want to get this thing to a point where, you know, everyone has a Neuralink in them. It works off of, you know, Bluetooth or whatever. And it, because it's so advanced, because it's such a speed, like a a speed bump, then you could, you just don't talk because there are so many imperfections with speech um, that it would just be better to explain your detailed concept via however you would. Maybe it's a, some somewhat speech but somewhat, you know, diagrams or whatever that you can just directly transfer over to the other person. <laughs> yeah. That would be phenomenal.
0: It, yeah, it's kind of weird. It's getting into like a metacognition it is, idea of definitely. like what is an idea when yeah. you're talking, when you're describing something. You're using the medium of, of language to describe some uh, like an idea.
1: Yeah, do we get a new medium? (laughs) Yeah,
0: but like, are we able to transfer those ideas? Is there something in your brain that transfers that idea? Like, is there a series of neurons that can fire that Mm. signal car? Yeah. Or signal sheep? Yeah. Um, Or is that, uh, that's fascinating. And actually, right at the beginning of the podcast, they spoke about uh, he's obviously had his baby Mm. just recently. And he was talking about how you watch a baby learn, and it's literally a neural net happening. Yeah, said, it is
1: quite interesting that the neural nets are based off of human brains. I mean, it makes sense because obviously that's what we're trying to kind of get it to do is is act like a human brain. So why not? Why don't we just structure it like a human brain? <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah, it is interesting.
0: There's a a very interesting book called the master algorithm um by pedro domingos Uh, and it's about that it's about uh, how neural nets basically work how artificial intelligence works um and it instead of taking a very technical approach to it equations and like code and whatnot it talks about it from the perspective of a person and how a person learns, and how yeah you translate that into uh a computer and designing an algorithm to do mm-hmm. that um and they talk about like the idea of concepts, the idea of like say a person is like one of the more fascinating bits to me because if you think about our brains develop the concept say of of another person, say your mum when you're little. Yeah. You're able to identify that your mum up close to you when you're a baby you're lying on your back, your mum up yeah. close to you is the same as your mum across the room or your mum walking away from you or side profile. Yeah. That's not different concepts in a baby's mind. It's the same thing, just yeah. different aspects of it. That's something that you can try to teach a computer to do.
1: Yeah. But that's something that doesn't come naturally to the computer system. That's the bit where you have to, what they they talk about with Tesla, when Tesla's looking at at the world around it through the cameras, they have to annotate what the car is is looking at. because. Um, for instance, looking at the front of a bicycle and the back of a bicycle, the car doesn't make the connection that it's still the same thing. It's still yeah. a bicycle until until a human goes in and annotates it, so it has it has that feedback that yes, that is a bicycle, which yeah. it can then learn from. Um,
0: yeah, and like a bicycle a hundred meters down the road and a bicycle hitting the bumper is the same thing.
1: It's still a bicycle. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: And so, yeah, you can annotate that. You say, yes, this is this concept. Yes, this is this other concept. Mm. And the book kind of explains how do you how do you define what those concepts are. Um, and right. Yeah. Like, there's kind of different approaches to it where you can define groups of concepts. Mm. Um, so, like bicycles, say in general, or things. That are alive that you can hit yeah is a, is one concept yeah and say in the context of Tesla, if you're about to hit one of these things, swerve out of the way.
1: Yeah, get the hell out of there. <laughs> yeah
0: but what happens if you teach it say if you recognize a person's face, swerve mm. out of the way or like take evasive action. Yeah. What happens if you're driving along and a car pulls out in front of you, and there's a person's face painted on the back?
1: Yeah, exactly. What does the yeah. Tesla
0: do then? Yeah, yeah. And so this is exactly. all part of the theories. Okay, so there's something else that you need to identify. It's not the person's face that you need to identify anymore. It's something mm. else. Yeah. Um, and what do you what do you tell the computer to identify?
1: Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, it can get very complicated because they've already seen now that they've upload for keeping on with this Tesla example. Now they've had a wide release of the stop light and traffic light recognition um, yeah. and braking. But for instance, um, I think their head of of neural nets was saying that there are you know so many variations of say just a stop sign and you know e- even though it seems like if you see a stop sign then you stop. It seems like there's only one thing that you do when you see a stop sign. There's actually not. There's actually very many things that might happen. For example, like uh, uh, a a traffic worker might be holding a stop sign and it could be in an active or an inactive state. They might be holding it up to stop you or they might be holding it down by their hip, which is not an active stop sign. Um, they pulled up examples of there's a stop sign where underneath it, it says stop except if turning right or something yeah. like that, where that stop sign may not necessarily mean stop. They had an interesting example of 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 a roadside business that had a big stop sign um, banner like billboard yeah. um, that wanted them people to stop by their business. Um, and you have to teach that, the neural net, not to stop. For that signal so yeah it's uh, it's if they can if they can pull this off i mean that is a phenomenal feat because there are so many weird variations of of even the most what what seems like the most simple thing like you see a stop sign on the road and you stop but it turns out that there's so many variations that actually the neural net has its work cut out for it trying to figure out what means what, without the, uh, the kind of context of, of being a human. And, and I don't even know what it is about, like what you're alluding to before. Like, what is it about how, how can we learn, you know, that that stop sign yeah. doesn't, doesn't mean stop, that the that a, that a computer finds so hard?
0: Yeah, like we don't know what the how to put into a concept. You need, you're looking for the stop sign that clearly means you're going to stop. Yeah. Like, that's what the concept is. like, And we know, yeah. we can see it, we can identify. Well, I've got to stop now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you can't put it into words. And mm. so I think this is where, like, sort of AI research or machine learning research mm. goes into, like, like that, that's where it's going. And it's yeah. okay. So we can't tell the computer what that means. Mm. Uh, we can't tell. We can't tell it what we want it to do. We just. We all we can say is basically stop signs mean stop, except when they don't. Yeah. And we want you to learn that concept.
1: Yeah, that it still needs annotation. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, that that's. I think because that's where you have supervised and unsupervised learning. I want to say mm. where one requires annotation and one doesn't. Yeah. Um and we need like basically what the ideal situation is, is we build a system where you don't need annotation.
1: Mm. And that's what Tesla's doing at the moment.
0: Yeah. That that's basically what AI research is doing. Yeah. Is trying to figure out how you how do you do that. Because we don't do that. Like we don't need someone to a large extent we get told stop sign means stop mm. but we can figure out the stop sign painted on the side of the building doesn't mean stop
1: yeah exactly right uh, yeah
0: and the, the the stop sign that someone's holding down by their their hip doesn't mean stop
1: yeah that's what i find so interesting and and, and this is where once you take the time not even like I'm pretty dumb dumb when it comes to this sort of stuff, but when you take the take an interest in learning more about it, for instance, the analysts are, are hooking into Tesla because Elon keeps saying oh, you know full self driving is 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 delayed it's delayed it's delayed it's coming later but um, a, a huge amount of their um, efforts at the moment is not even to create the full self driving system it's to create the software the 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 ai system that teaches the neural net yeah (laughs) so because they say once that they once they once they have the the software or the the ai system that can teach the neural net um how to you know how to act in different scenarios and whatever when it's out on the road then I mean, that's, that's a game changer because then you take away the need for, as I understand it, you take away that need for human annotation. Yeah. Um, and if you can have a, 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 a digital system, a software system doing it, um, a, a, a computerized system doing that, then obviously the rate at which, you know, data can be processed and scenarios can be run just goes, up infinitely almost versus a human sitting there and annotating each scenario. Yeah. Super interesting. Super interesting. Yeah. Man, I wish I knew more about it. Ah, uh, plus my trainer thought I was going to say something. Uh-huh. I was The one interesting point um, that I wanted to bring up, though, out of the... Um, the Joe Rogan podcast with Elon Mm -hmm. is when did you listen to the bit where Joe Rogan's like oh yeah they're talking about how how long is it going to take before this whole idea of we don't even have to talk to each other how long how far away is that how far away and Elon kind of sits there for a good 10 seconds or something and he's like "Mm, they're not talking to each other bit oh look probably five to ten years (laughs) yeah and then Joe Rogan's like wait what I wonder
0: what (laughs) mental calculus he's doing there? Like, is yeah. he is he doing anything or is he...
1: You, you know, my theory, my, my theory on it, I actually think that he is trying to give an accurate guess. But I think the reason, this is my theory anyway, the reason that Elon is wrong on timelines so commonly is that his businesses or his endeavours, his ideas, you know, whatever, he tends to achieve a rate of improvement or a rate of production or a rate of growth that is more exponential than what it is linear yeah um for instance if you look at cumulative uh deliveries of tesla vehicles is quite exponential this whole idea of neural net full self driving that's going to be an exponential improvement, you know, as they build the computer system to teach the neural net how to drive better, like, the the rate of improvement is just exponential. Yeah. So I feel like the reason he gets it wrong is if you judge things on exponential growth, then you only have to be a little, little, like, a little period of time off to get your guess, like, completely wrong. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) So I kind of feel like that's what Elon's doing in his head is he's trying to look at the exponential, like it wouldn't be perfect exponential, obviously, but, you know, kind of in that realm and then try and put a a timeline on it because then if he's wrong, he's, he may only, you know, he he might, you know, because he's trying to guess on that exponential scale, he could be wrong by a lot in, in only very short space of time. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, that does. Yeah. Uh,
0: what I, w- I was going to say is, I think p- partly it's relevant here is that partly he's trying to figure out like where we are, what we need to do, etc. And partly he's trying to motivate people. He's, because he he said it in the podcast. He can't do it himself. He needs people with him to do it. So he needs to motivate people to do it. And it reminds me of JFK in, I think it was 1962, when he said that by the end of the decade, we're going to have put someone on the moon and return him home safely. Yeah. And like, we did it.
1: Yeah. It's it's more like at the time, maybe it's more of a, an aspirational goal. like Yeah. Yeah. Motivational almost. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, and so he sets these timelines that are probably, well, it turns out in a lot of the cases where he sets timelines, they're too ambitious, but it doesn't matter if they're too ambitious because it, it gets people working. Um The other thing I, I'd rather wanted to say just before about how you teach a, a car to drive reminded me of Apollo because you've got these inherent limitations based on the hardware like if you could put a human brain in the car it would learn how to drive pretty quick Mm. but we can't do that so we're having to learn and he said this when they were talking about what a neural net is is we know what a brain does to a large extent Mm. to learn but we can't replicate it uh like we can't, we physically can't replicate the hardware. Um, yeah. And a big reason for that is that a brain is a very analog thing. It's not like it's not a binary computer system. Hmm. Whereas our computers are binary. Like we've got switches that go on and off, and when you you can build those switches into configurations that allow you to perform logic. Hmm. And that's that's the basis of all computing is logic. So if Mm. this condition is true, then do this. If not, do that.
1: But then again, you can argue that the brain is slightly binary because a neuron either fires or it doesn't.
0: Yeah, yeah. So there is um, a binary uh, structure structure in the brain. It does operate in part in a binary fashion. Yeah. but then in part it also operates in an analog fashion right. uh, i forget where which book i read this in but mm. that's basically like one of the hard sort of barriers we've come across is that we don't know how to build a comp- an analog computer like that that could yeah. perform those functions mm. um and so what we do is we try to approximate it by having as many binary switches as possible yeah. that approximate an analog function. Yeah. Um, and so the reason it reminds me of Apollo is because in the case of Tesla, we can't replicate what a brain does. We have to approximate it as best we can. Mm. And if we approximate it close enough, we can make the car drive by itself. The uh, Apollo missions, they had very limited technology. Like, it, it's insane how primitive the technology on those rockets was. And, and that uh, basically meant that they were in some situations where they knew how, like, something was going wrong, for example. They knew how to get the rocket out of that situation, but mm. the computers didn't have enough memory to store the maneuvers. and so like particularly when they were on approach to the moon and like landing on the moon they had to do it in a very specific way because it required like less maneuvers so Mm. the computers didn't overload right Um, and one of the sort of consequences of the computer overloading was that it could no longer fire the engine, which is oh kind of a bad thing. That's game when, over. Yeah, when you're on the moon. like <laughs> right, So they had to design the flight path in such a way that wasn't necessarily the most efficient flight path. Mm. It was the flight path that the computer could handle. And if you did that right. today, like, no problem. We can make a computer to handle that. Yeah, but they yeah. couldn't do it back then, um, yeah. and so that's part of why like SpaceX is able to land their their uh, rockets on Earth. It's a much more complicated, um, much more complicated thing to do landing it on Earth than landing it on the moon, basically mm-hmm. because of the atmosphere.
1: Yeah. Like, yeah, definitely.
0: Bring it in. You have drag. You have more to. There's there's more maneuvers effectively that you have to do.
1: Oh yeah, and ch- and co- consistently changing you know air pressures and yeah yeah all that sort of stuff that rock the rocket around and
0: yeah. Whereas like like if you think about how as you're coming in, consistently the air pressure is changing, so you're going to progressively rely less on the rocket and more on the drag but yeah. that is an instruction that you have to load into the computer mm. and it has to become discretized at some point like you say, either you're going to measure the air pressure or you're going to measure the uh, the time and after 10 seconds you're going to reduce the rocket throttle, after 20 seconds you reduce it some more, those are instructions and they take mm. up memory And back in the nineteen sixties, the computers were so, that the computer memory was so small, they couldn't do too many of those. Yeah, it's fascinating.
1: It's there. It's it's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the stuff that they did achieve with that program is just really phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, and it's just so surprising. I find as well that in how however many years, how many years has it been? When did they land on the moon? Fifty one years ago fifty one years ago, and in that time we haven't gotten another soul on there, yeah um
0: there's there's a lot of reasons for that,
1: yeah, oh, I get the reasons behind it it's um, just it's just yeah strange yeah it it's I mean, strange it's it's kind of like like humanity it's like all right, we did that now, uh let's do something else,
0: <laughs> yeah, um but also <laughs> you look you look back on it and you just think how insane were those people yeah. that did that.
1: <laughs> like I think being an astronaut is significantly de risked over the over the last kind of couple of decades. It's
0: definitely de risked <laughs> a lot. Um but also like you look at it from the perspective of the, the fact that we got there is in no small part luck. That nothing went wrong. Yeah. Everything worked. Every yeah, everything just worked because there's some small possibility that things could have gone wrong and Mm. NASA would have not been able to continue with the program. And there's a book I read by Douglas Murray, I think, on the Apollo program, and he lays it out in a very interesting way, Mm. that if you're designing a part of this rocket, you want to determine how reliable it is. Like, what the, what's the percentage failure rate? If you get a 1% failure rate, the minimum number of tests you have to do is 100. Mm. Because it has to fail once out of 100. Yeah, true. So that's the minimum number of tests. If you want a 0.1% failure rate, you've got to do 1,000 tests. If you do want to do a 0.01% failure rate, you've got to do 10,000 tests. mm Um, but you can't test a rocket 10,000 times. (laughs) So they did insane things with those rockets. Like when they were building the engine, they would do tests like where they'd put on a stand and fire it. Yeah. And they'd stick bombs inside it and detonate the bombs. Oh my God. To simulate like just instability in the rocket. Oh, weird. Yeah. Like, to bas- basically, because they couldn't test the rocket. They had such... Like, they had a limited budget. So yeah. they couldn't keep testing rockets and testing rockets and testing rockets. Um, so they had to do these other types of tests and then try to simulate things going wrong. Whereas now, yeah. we can do that on the computer.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: You can test it 10, 10 million times on the computer and get... A, pretty good idea of what's going on mm. uh, they couldn't do that back then and so you think about we didn't know how reliable that rocket was when we sent people up on it because mm. we just didn't we didn't have the ability to test it and figure it out and so to a large extent that is why we haven't been able to go back to the moon because we now know how risky it is back then we just didn't know how risky it was yeah. and now we look at it and say well it's not worth it
1: yeah elon musk certainly thinks it is
0: yeah i mean if if you can build it in a way that we can then say it's safe yeah like well great but that,
1: yeah that's the thing yeah
0: but uh, and also you've got to find the funding
1: for it that's very true that's very true yeah Yeah, that's why I'm a big believer in the commercialization of of space.
0: But then you'll make billionaires who will steal all our money.
1: Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Naughty, naughty billionaires. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway,
0: we've been going for a while, so we'll probably wrap it up there.
1: Yeah, sounds good. That was a good chat. We've spoken about so much stuff. Yeah,
0: definitely have you on more often.
1: Yeah, I love it that you're... Talking to me during the week, you're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to cut the show length back to an hour. Yeah, we've been
0: going for a lot longer than that now.
1: (laughs) No, it's all good. It's all good. That's a good thing. (laughs) um, Yeah. I mean, it's good because it doesn't feel like we've been talking for that long. I mean, you just talk about interesting topics and before you know it, you've been talking for a couple hours.
0: Yeah, that's what's great about podcasting.
1: Yeah. It doesn't really matter how long it goes for as long as you keep talking about interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. If you're not talking about something interesting, please keep your podcast length quite short. <laughs> um, do you listen to many podcasts? No, I'm trying to. I actually don't listen to that many podcasts. Um, I'm trying to get into. Because one thing that I've always hated is reading. I just do not like reading. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to get into audiobooks at the moment. Yeah. I'm actually listening to the audiobook of Wolf of Wall Street, which oh, is yeah? uh, interesting. So far, though the the movie is quite a, an accurate representation of of the book obviously the book can go into a little bit more detail sometimes yeah um like i'm i'm listening to the chapter at the moment where he's talking um to the the swiss banker about the different you know rules and regulations and when they would have to comply or not comply with sec or, Fed, or fbi investigation yeah um, and that sort of stuff so there's a bit more flavor a bit more detailed description in there yeah um than what, what goes on in the movie, but obviously a movie's a movie.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I listened to audiobooks a lot.
1: Yeah. Um, I Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to, trying to get a, a next, uh, another audio book lined up for once I finish Wolf of Wall Street. Have do you got you any use, good recommendations out of, audible? out of all the ones? Yeah. I use audible. Well, yeah.
0: there's a, there's one, they, they do a free audio book every month. Yeah. Like that, they just select one and they they everyone gets oh, okay. it for
1: free. Oh right, okay.
0: Um, like it's called the editor's extra. So just like have a look in the Audible app, right. you'll find it. Yeah. Um, this month it's Bill Bryson's A Short History of Nearly Everything. Right. Which is like a classic, like sort of well-known and renowned book on just sort of a history yeah. of nearly everything. Basically, yeah. it's what it says on the tin.
1: Do you get to like keep it, or yeah, does it yeah. expire?
0: No, you get to keep it. Oh, cool. So every month they, so obviously you get your credit every month, um, but then they also have this extra book every month.
1: All oh, right. That. So, I, to be honest, I did sign up before I really read what I was getting myself into. <laughs> yeah. So you get one book a month. Is that how it works? Yeah.
0: So you got a credit, um, right, for for a book, and you can save those up. Okay. Um, like, you don't have to use them every month. Yeah. Um, and then that's basically the credits is good for one book. That's basically okay. the way it works. Um, and then they've recently introduced it that they have an ed- editor's pick every month yeah. that just every member gets for free. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, that's, that's the one for this month. Um, in terms of other books, That like Will Never what... Work by Mark Randolph is very interesting. Sorry, what is it? That will never work. It's a story of uh, Netflix. Oh, okay. Um, But What's interesting is it's Mark Randolph was the CEO of Netflix before they became a streaming company. Right. So it's their old
1: school business model. Yeah. But what's interesting
0: is he sort of tells the story of how they figured out how to make that business model work because they knew what they wanted to do, Mm. but they didn't know how to make it, like, make money. Basically, oh, okay. and right, it, it's right. fascinating how they figured out how to do it, because uh, basically they ran the numbers and getting DVDs and sending them out to customers didn't wasn't viable. It didn't make money just because okay. of the costs of having to warehouse enough DVDs, having to like pay for postage, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. So then. Basically, what the business model became was that you would get your, basically, the other the other issue with it was that you had, when you want to watch a DVD, it's like, say, a Friday night, you don't want it, like, you want the DVD to be there, or you're going to drive to the local blockbuster and pick one up. And so, it wasn't working that, like, you had to sort of decide a week in advance what movie you mm. were going to want to watch. Yeah. That didn't really work. So what they decided to do was that you created a queue in your Netflix account Mm -hmm. of the DVDs you wanted, and -hmm. they'd send you like two or three of them. And you got to keep them for as long as you wanted, and then once you were done with them, you sent them back. And they would send you, you send one back, they'll send you the next one in your queue. Right. So what that does is it means that you always have a couple of DVDs, they're ready to watch for when you're in the yeah, mood. Right. Yeah, And the other thing it does is it means that Netflix doesn't have to store DVDs.
1: Mm. You
0: store them for Netflix. Right. They figured out, they did a bunch of data analysis and figured out how many copies of each DVD they would need and they would buy new copies and put them in a, a, an area of the country if they needed to. So that yep. basically you could get DVDs overnight.
1: Mm. And it worked
0: like it works in this whole ecosystem. That's interesting. It's fascinating.
1: Yeah. Oh, it should be a good read. A good listen. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, the ride of a lifetime by Bob Iger is also really good. Oh yeah. Yeah, like it's basically the the story of his his time at Disney. Yeah, I
1: have to. I'll get on that for sure. Yeah, it's really really good.
0: Mm. Um, oh, know. that'll get me going. Uh, yeah, I've got I've got tons of books in here. Yeah. Um, the Innovators by Walter Isaacson is really good. That's basically about how the current tech tech industry was built, all the way back yep. from like um Ada Lovelace in the eighteen hundreds. Like okay. From from there, all the way through to like Bill Gates.
1: Right. Um. Oh, that should get me going.
0: Uh, but yeah, the, the audiobooks is a great way to get through books. Um I just find like the thing you've gotta do is find the right books, um like you couldn't read a very technical book, yeah, because you
1: listening to the intelligent investor did not work, no,
0: no um because you you sort of gotta mull over some of the details a little bit and mm. doesn't it doesn't work um whereas something like uh like Bob Iger's book is just a story. Yeah. Um. And so that's easy to listen to. Mm. Um, like I find biographies are are really good because mm. you, it's just a story of of yep. what the person did.
1: Mm.
0: Yep. Thanks everyone for listening to that episode of Business as Usual. If you want to hear more from Brandon, go check him out on the Young Investors podcast. That is available both on YouTube and wherever you consume your podcast normally. He also has a YouTube channel, which you can find on YouTube at Aussie Wealth Creation. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time for episode 61.